0: So I invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick up in the middle part of verse 10 uh, where we left off last week. And I'll invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to, re- to revel in the day- daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if... Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers here at this church that we can participate together in glorifying you, exalting your son, Jesus Christ, celebrating new life in baptism and coming to your word. Trusting God that your Holy Spirit will teach us all that we need. Instruct us through it, we pray. God, we thank you for the vibrant small group ministry in our church. The primary means of making disciples together as we engage in life instruction. We thank you, God, for a new small group that will start today. God, would you bless that ministry? Would you bless those people who will join and be a part of it? Will new disciples be made because a new opportunity for discipleship? Arises in our midst, we pray. God, would you continue to raise up leaders, to start new small groups, to reach new people, to continue the mission of making disciples that make disciples here at Nansman River, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As so we continue here in our series in Second Peter, concluding chapter two this morning, we turn our attention to identifying false teachers. This is the third sermon uh, here in this second chapter of Second Peter. And the entire chapter deals with false teachers. So it's our third sermon on false teachers. Two weeks ago, calling a call to beware of the false teachers. Last week, looking at uh, the the difference of rescue and judgment: rescue for the people of God, and judgment for those who uh, are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Some of which make up the false teachers. This week, concerning we're concerning ourselves with identifying false teachers the main idea of our sermon is that believers must be equipped to identify avoid and renounce false teachers who proclaim a faulty gospel contrary to the scriptures in my parents retirement they moved to the mountains of north carolina now we didn't grow up in the mountains i grew up in south louisiana my family had always lived in south louisiana but my dad had always said the minute he retired he was moving to somewhere that actually had seasons. You see, we only have summer and about two weeks of winter in Louisiana. And so dad said, we're going to move. And he meant it like the next day after he had retired, the moving truck came and they moved to a beautiful place in the mountains of of North Carolina. And my mom uh, started a hobby, maybe it began before that in Louisiana, but really started a hobby in earnest uh, in their retirement age of bird watching. Do we have any bird watchers in the room so is anybody because somebody's going to come to me at the end and be like you didn't explain bird watching correctly it, it's an illustration folks okay just bear with me and so my mom loves watching birds they've got out all of these bird feeders sometimes which the bears come and pull down off the trees which is far more entertaining to me to watch the bears than to watch the birds but she loves it identifying the birds by how they look, by if they're male or female in the species, by uh, if they're a juvenile, by how the way that they sound. And she's even gotten our youngest son, AJ, into doing this with her when either when they're here or down there, uh, or we're down there with them in North Carolina. And she has an app on her phone or iPad, something like that, that will actually listen to the birds. So even if you can't see it, it'll listen to the birds and tell you what bird it is. And so me being I don't know, kind of the smart son that I am and having no knowledge whatsoever of birds or bird sounds, asked a question. I think it was the last time they were here. I said, so that, that's really interesting, right? This app, it'll listen to the birds. I said, what about the mockingbird? I thought I was being slick, you know? It's like, cause the mockingbird makes the sound that the other birds make, right? It listens to a bird and it'll make that same sound. How does it know? Why, why doesn't it just think everything's a mockingbird or how does it not know that, that it is a mockingbird? And of course, those of you that may know anything about birds, you know that mockingbirds do sound like other birds, but not exactly that they're off and that people that know, particularly people, maybe that program apps on phones to be able to identify birds know the difference between a mockingbird that may sound like a different bird and the, that actual bird. Now, some of us live in ignorance of these kind of things, right? We live in ignorance of, of birding and categorizing and knowing what birds sound like. And in truth, if that's your hobby, that's great. Everybody's got a hobby, something that they do, something that they enjoy. Um, I'm, I'm happy to kind of live in my willful ignorance of different birds. They're pretty, but they're all birds to me, right? But I'm afraid some of us live in willful ignorance of false teachers, I think this is one of Peter's concerns as he writes his final letter to the church, expecting any day to be put to death for the gospel, writing this final farewell to the church and recognizing that false teachers have risen up among them. He is concerned that some people within the church are unable to identify who the false teachers are among them. That because, like a mockingbird, the false teachers will at times sound like real teachers of the Scriptures. Or, like others, they, they will look like or they will act like in certain ways, like, like the other teachers. That, that Peter is concerned for the church that they won't be able to identify. So, he writes this final section of this second chapter giving us the DNA, the description, both kind of physical description, if you will, the the way that they're going to act, but also uh, the doctrinal description, the things that they're going to teach so that the church in Peter's absence will be able to identify the false teachers. And we, the continuation of the church, some 2000 years later, can still use these words to identify false teachers, Now, as I have told you before, we must be careful because the false teachers that Peter is addressing are from within. They are part of the gathered body. Now, I'm going to make the argument that I have made all along and that these are not Christians, but that they have looked enough like Christians, they have said enough Christian things that they have been accepted into the body of Christ wrongly. And are now seeking to lead people astray. And we must be able to identify them so that we can avoid them and even renounce their teaching. Because their teachings proclaim a gospel that is contrary to scripture. And this is where we're going to end up today. I'm going to tell you the end from the beginning. Scripture, which Peter argued at the end of chapter 1, has to be the basis by which we judge teaching within the church. It is necessary for understanding the gospel, for knowing how to obey the gospel, and for knowing the will of God. And so we must use scripture alone to gauge the teachings within the church and to determine if it is true Bible teaching or if it is false. So let's start with the faulty character of false teachers. Look there with me. Again, the, chap, the chapters and verses are not inspired. And so one thought ended at the, at the beginning of verse 10 and another thought begins at the end of verse 10. So we're picking up the middle of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though, uh, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So what Peter does here is he, he tells us about the character of, the flawed character of these false teachers. And he tells us here in this, this first paragraph that these, this first section that these teachers' character is marked by audacity and arrogance. Now we can't be certain who the glorious ones are, that the false teachers are blaspheming in verse 13 we're told that they are bold and willful that that term bold and willful means that they are uh, uh, they have they are working with audacity and with arrogance that they are doing things that are beyond themselves right and then he's going to use an example from their teaching now their teaching fortunately for us is lost to time i say fortunately for us because it didn't continue right it, it didn't lead the church astray. It would be helpful if we did have some of those writings and some of those teachings. And we do have some in some instances, but not in this one. So we don't know exactly even who the glorious ones Peter are describing are. Now, various Bi- Bible scholars have said that these are, could be angels, either fallen angels carrying on uh, what he had said in the previous section, that these could be um, non-fallen angels, actual angels that still serve the Lord, that this could be the spirit realm in general, that this could be uh, glorious ones, could be a metaphor for uh, pastors and overseers, elders within the church who are teaching right things within the church. But truthfully, whoever the glorious ones are really doesn't matter for us to understand what Peter is saying about these people. So this, this, these, this blasphemous things that they are saying against them are things that, about which they are ignorant. He tells us in verse 12 that they are blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They are insisting upon making a whole lot of noise about subjects that they don't know anything about, that they are unqualified to speak on you say, does that mean that, that they didn't have the proper education, that they didn't have the proper credentials? No. Listen, some of the best Bible teachers that I have been around in my entire life have been people that have less Bible education, at least formal education than me. And here's what I have learned in my formal education uh, in, through, through seminary and through my doctoral work. Here's, here's the greatest lesson that I have learned. There is a whole lot out there I don't know. That that the more educated I become, the more I look back and go, man, I, I just don't know a whole lot. It, there's there's it, there's a humbling aspect to continuing in an education, and not just in pastoral ministry or Bible teaching, but in any kind of education. There, there's there's humility that should come with advancing your education. Paul's not, ar- or Peter's not arguing for advancing our education. He's not saying make sure these people have the correct credentials. But these are people who are willing to speak about a subject, these glorious ones that they're blaspheming. They're willing to speak about this subject and they're not qualified to speak on it because even Peter's not qualified. People just aren't qualified to speak on it. They're talking about things they don't know anything about. They're insisting, he says in verse 12, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct to just make noise. This is what animals do, right? I opened by the illustration of birds. How do you know if there's a bird in your yard? Well, one, you may see it, but before you see it, you're probably going to hear it because animals make noise. And that's actually one of the downfalls of animals, right? An animal for the hunters in the room, an animal in the woods that's making noise is an easier prey, isn't it? And he leans into that. In verse 12, they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct that just make noise, right? Born to be caught and destroyed. An animal that's loud in the woods is opening itself up for destruction, opening itself up to, to be caught and destroyed, just like the false teachers are in their arrogance their boldness about things they shouldn't be bold about. Let me let me just bring this point down before we move on because we've talked about first second and third tier doctrine that the Bible is really abundantly clear on some things and less clear on others. And we as a church we want to be really clear about the things the Bible is clear on and we want to stand firm on those things, unmoving on those things, but we want to hold with a looser and looser grip the things that the Bible is less and less clear on. What the false teachers in Peter's day are doing is they are making a really big deal about some things that aren't really big deals. They're talking about things loudly and boldly that they are not qualified to speak on. And they are raising these things to a level that they should not be raised to. Next, he's going to tell us four things about them. The end of verse 13 and all of verse 14. He's gonna tell us more about who these people are. He does this in rapid fire succession. Let's look at these four. The first, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. By saying that they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, what, what Peter is saying is they practice their sin in open. They can't even wait till the nighttime. Roman culture was much like our culture. There were certain things that people would turn a blind eye to as long as you just didn't do it out in the day. As long as you just didn't do it out in public, didn't do it out in the open, there were some things in Roman culture that people would just allow to happen even though they knew it was debauchery and they knew it was wrong if they did it at night. And these people aren't even waiting for nighttime. They're just living openly in their sin out in public. They're not ashamed at all. And this is tied to their arrogance. This is tied to that boldness that he's speaking of. They're just so sure in their way. And one of the things that we'll see when we get to chapter 3 that they were so sure on was that Jesus wasn't going to return. And if you're so sure that Jesus isn't going to return, you pretty much live the way that you want to live, can't you? And that was what these, there's one of the things these false teachers were trapped in, was that they were sure that Jesus wasn't going to return. If he's not going to return, you just live. Revel in the daytime. Number two, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deception while they feast with you. This means that they bring shame upon the church by receiving the Lord's Supper. There are actually some um, manuscripts of 2 Peter that take the word deception and actually replace it with the word from Jude 12, love feasts. Jude, the companion uh, letter uh, from the, from Jude that that lines up in many cases with 2 Peter, and we'll see a couple of those places, uh, uses this term love feast. And some of the some of the translators of this actually bring that word in to, to ensure that we understand what Peter is writing about here. He's writing about the Lord's Supper. He's writing about the communion of the church as we take the Lord's Supper together, which by the way, we're going to do tonight as a congregation at six o'clock during our members meeting. Will you come? Come, come tonight and take the Lord's Supper with us. If you're a Christian, come, whether you're a member of our church or not, if you're a professing believer in Jesus, you're welcome at the Lord's table. But these people were not professing believers of Jesus. They may be said they were, but they truly were not followers of Jesus. And so what they're doing is they are being blots and blemishes. They're being they're making a mockery in their deception while they feast with the church. They didn't belong at the table, but they were pulling up a seat anyway. In verse 14, we see they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable with sin. They entice unsteady souls. They were always looking for sin, the false teachers were. They were practicing their sin in the daytime. That was the first point when we get to this third one, right? Not only are they practicing their sin in the daytime, they're always looking for new ways to sin. particularly, he identifies the sin of adultery. Their eyes were full of adultery, Peter says. Eyes full. They were always looking for someone to pray on. Now, he's, he's specifically speaking uh, about sexual sin here. He's specifically speaking uh, about adultery, about looking for these women that they could take advantage of. But this is what these false teachers were doing. They were always looking for someone that they could use for their own pleasure, that they could use for their own gain, that they could use for their own sinfulness. They had eyes full of it. They were insatiable in this sin enticing unsteady souls. They were always looking to lead other people into sin with them. Number four, they have hearts gained. They have hearts trained in greed. They've practiced the art of greed. That word trained in the original language is the same word that we get our word gymnasium from. And what is it that you do in a gymnasium? You train in a gymnasium, right? Now, whether you're, you know, you lift weights, you run, you work on gymnastic skills, you work on dance skills, all of these are things that happen in one way or another in a gymnasium. Maybe you practice basketball skills, you do something to get better. And this is what Peter says about these false teachers. They have hearts trained in greed. They have hearts that, that, are, that, that are exercising They've like gotten better and better at one particular thing. And that is enriching themselves over and over again. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, Peter already warned about this. When he was introducing the idea of these false teachers, he says in verses two and three, and many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. This is what the false teachers did was they exploited people and they actually got better and better at exploiting people for their own gain. But could we contrast this greed of false teachers with what the scriptures say the earthly leaders of the church are actually supposed to be like? There are several places in the New Testament that tell us what the elders over God's church are supposed to be like, what their character is supposed to be like. There's a couple of places, uh, one in 1 Timothy and one in Titus, that give us like full lists of what these men should be like. And in Titus, starting verse 7, we read, For an overseer, that's an elder, a pastor of the church, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy, uh, to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those in the circumcision party. God has a design for his church to be led by godly men who are not perfect, but who are not marked in the same way that these false teachers are. And do you notice the contrast between the two? That these false teachers are arrogant, but overseers of God's church are not supposed to be arrogant or quick-tempered. That These are people that, that, that are always seeking to, to sin out in public, but but overseers are people that are supposed to be disciplined and self-controlled and upright and holy, that false teachers are are training themselves for their own greed, but true overseers of the church are not supposed to be greedy for gain. And then what does uh, Paul tell us in this letter to Titus is it, what... What is it that we test this by, right? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he'll be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That this is where the rubber meets the road is what do you do with the truth of scripture that determines if someone is a false teacher or a right teacher within the church. So this is who they are. He continues Talking about their greed in verses 15 and 16, he's going to use an Old Testament reference. He says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, (laughs) Every bit of me wants us to go to Numbers 22 and just like walk through that whole story. I don't have time for that. I really wanted to this morning, but I'm not going to have time to it. So if you've never read that story, Numbers 22, it's going to be a place that you can read it. Let me just tell you what happens here and connect it to here. Let me just tell you the part that makes sense here. Balaam was a diviner living in the land of Israel at the end of the wilderness wandering of God's people. So God's people, this is towards the end of the life of Moses. They are about to cross the Jordan and about to go take the promised land after the exodus and their wilderness wandering. And a king hired Balaam to curse Israel. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And the king comes and says, I'll give you a lot of money if you'll do it. And he's like, okay to the point where an angel appears to his donkey and his donkey talks to him after he keeps beating his donkey. His donkey talks to him, he's like, why do you keep beating me? There's an angel in the road literally trying to stop us. That's the, that's the abridged version of the story of Balaam. There's more to it, you could, you could read it there. So why, why would Peter look back and, and connect that story? Because what is it ultimately that, that changed Balaam's mind? It was his greed, it was his greed. He was out for his own gain. And this is a person, scripture tells us, that God spoke to. And yet he was still out for his own gain. And that companion letter in Jude, we read in Jude 11, woe to them talking about false teachers for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, same story. And then another story from number 16 and perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude gives us three examples of the wickedness brought about by greed, money, and power of false teachers. Peter just gives us one, but they're all speaking to the same thing, that these are greedy men seeking to lead the church away from the true gospel of Jesus for their own gain and their own pleasure and their own greed and their own arrogance. That's who they are. This is why Peter calls them in verse 14, accursed children. They are, as we had already seen, doomed to destruction. Number two, the false doctrines of false teachers, the faulty doctrines of false teachers. False is true there as well. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Let me tell you two things. I think there's two things here in verses 17 through 19 that that show us the, the faulty teaching of these false teachers. The first is that their doctrine is empty. It fails to lead people to life. That's why he calls them waterless springs and mist driven by storms. We understand Still today, even though we can turn a tap on and receive water, we understand the necessity of water for life. In ancient times, water was even a bigger deal. Still in some parts of this world, water is a big deal. That if the rain doesn't come, if the well runs dry, it is literally life or death. And this is what Peter is leaning into, is that he's saying these false teachers are like a well, a spring that has run dry, or a storm that blows up that doesn't actually have any rain to it. Jude and Jude 12 and 13 uses even more examples. He says, these are hidden reefs at your lo- hidden reefs at your love feasts. And they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. You say, why would they use these metaphors of things that are good, like a spring, a storm, the waves, the stars, all of these in the ancient world were used for good, and yet these are ones who are not doing things that are good because their doctrine is empty. It it doesn't give life. They're, they're, They're leading people away from true living water and bringing them to wells that are dry. See, the true gospel brings us life. It brings us living water. Jesus says this in John 17. We're told he stood up on the last and great day of the feast. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. another one. I'd love to tell more of this story. Go to Israel with me one day, and I'll tell you the story where this took place. My favorite moment in Israel is telling this story in the steps of the temple. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The true gospel, as the scriptures have said, the true gospel is life. The false gospel of the false teachers is empty. It's dirt at the bottom of a well. It's clouds that are promising rain that bring nothing. In verse 18 and 19, we see that their doctrine also, this is the second thing, enslaves For speaking loud boasts of folly. Remember, they're arrogant. They're bold when they don't need to be. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. There's no freedom in the gospel of the false teaching. There is only freedom found in Jesus. The true gospel, hear me today, my friends. Maybe your big concern isn't false teaching. Maybe your big concern is you've never come to faith in Jesus. You're here today and you're seeking and saying, is this Jesus thing real or not? Know this, that the good news of Jesus is presented to us in scripture is, has life and it will set you free. You may say, well, I don't need to be set free. I'm making my own choices. I don't have any master. I'm not doing anything that anybody tells me to do. I'm living my own life. Understand this. You are a slave to your own sin. You're a slave to your sin nature. You're doing some of these very things that these false teachers are doing, even if you're not trying to lead the church astray. But in Jesus, in his gospel, there is freedom. In John 8, Jesus says to Some of the Jewish people that had gathered around, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And if you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham that have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is no way that I can preach on on the faulty gospel of false teachers without presenting to you the true gospel as it is proclaimed to us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus found in Scripture. You, my friend, every one of us, whether we are in Christ or out of Christ, are born dead in our trespasses and sin. And yet God... Because he is rich in mercy, loving us with a great love with which we cannot comprehend, sends his son Jesus to live in our place, die in our place, so that we may have life and be set free from sin. Any teaching contrary to that is faulty gospel of false teachers. Because that is the truth. Of the life of Jesus and the hope that we have in his gospel. So, if you've never believed that today, I would encourage you, friend, believe that unto salvation today because it is offered to you freedom from your sin, rivers of living water offered to you. Finally, the faulty path of false teachers. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness and then after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. You say, what's happening here? Is he somehow presenting this idea that these false teachers were of the faith and are now not of the faith? No, Peter's not presenting that because that would be contrary to scripture. Peter, Peter's not telling us that these are born, true born again Christians who have wandered to the point of now being accursed children. What he is affirming is that these people for a time looked like Christians. They maybe even sounded like Christians, but ultimately they are not. Listen to the way R.C. Sproul writes it. The late great preacher R.C. Sproul writing on this passage says, Peter is not describing pagans here, but apostates. One cannot apostatize apart from having made a profession of faith, but such profession was false to begin with. These are people who join the church for every reason except for the right one. They were never true believers. They are unbelievers in the midst of believers and they will, soon, they will sooner or later depart from the presence of the church. Of a similar group of false teachers, the apostle John in 1 John chapter two writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. These false teachers heard the gospel, maybe even understood that the gospel was good news, but failed to truly believe the gospel, failed to be transformed by the gospel, and ultimately took what was good and turned it into evil. Then Peter concludes with two Proverbs. He says in verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Common metaphors in scripture, even in the teachings of Jesus for those who are still dead in their trespasses and sin is dogs and pigs. And Peter borrows from that metaphor and he says, uh, one of these found, a similar found in Proverbs, the other, the book of Proverbs, the other is not, but must have been a common proverb of the day. And Peter borrows and says, they're like dogs and pigs, dogs who return to eat their vomit, pigs who even after they've been cleaned will return and wallow in their filth the unregenerate apostates will eventually do what wicked people do. So what? By holding fast to the truth of scripture, believers are able to identify, avoid, and renounce false teachings. Church family, do you want to be someone who is not ignorant, does not willfully ignorant of false teaching within the church of God? You should be. We're commanded here. We're instructed here. We're equipped here to be able to do it. Do you want to be able to identify them, be able to avoid them, and even be able to provide truth in in the midst of their falsehood? The only answer is scripture. The only answer is for you to become a better student of God's word because God's word is necessary for us acting in our lives to be able to stand in the midst of false teaching. All of 2 Peter as I've said week after week in this series, is about our perseverance. It is about us persevering to the end. Next week, we're gonna turn our attention to the end, to the return of Jesus. And Second Peter is this call to persevere. Hear me, Christian. It is necessary for you to be a student of God's word, to persevere to the end the Bible is necessary for us to know the gospel, for us to maintain spiritual life, and for us to know God's will. Through it, we hear the gospel. Through it, we obey the gospel. And through it, we identify those who would seek to lead us astray to some faulty gospel. And we reject and correct. In one of his last letters, uh, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy almost, uh, just like Peter, at the doorway of death. And he says this to, to Timothy, I charge you, this is in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Occasionally, I'll see people quote 2 Peter chapter 4 as if it was only written about our day, as if somehow Paul was looking into the future and was writing about the 21st century. He was writing about the 21st century, but he wasn't writing about the 21st century alone. He was writing about the 20th century and the 19th century and the 18th century, all the way back to the first century in which he lived. Because false teachers and people who would gather for themselves, false teachers to tell them what they want to hear, to allow them to continue to live in their sin has always been a problem and will continue to be a problem until Jesus returns. But what is the answer that Paul gives to Timothy? Timothy, preach the word. Without knowing the word, Timothy couldn't preach the word. If he didn't know what scripture says, he would not be ready in season and out of season to rebu- reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And listen, this isn't just an instruction for me as the the teaching pastor of our church or for our elders as the pastors of our church. This is an instruction for every one of us to know God's word to stand on the truth of God's word and to say, I will not be taken in by false teaching and as far as I can help it, I will not allow others to be taken in by false teaching. Oh God, would you guard our church from falsehood? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that through it we find life and freedom in Jesus alone Holy Spirit, would you speak to the hearts of people who have not believed that? Maybe even people like these false teachers that have looked Christian in their lives, but they've not believed in the gospel unto salvation. They believed in a gospel of their own making, of their own creation. So come believe in Jesus now, we pray. Would you guard our church? Help us, oh God, we pray, to be a church that makes much of Jesus that loudly proclaims the gospel, that holds firm to those things that the Bible is clear on. And that, God, that we would not be bold and arrogant about those things, but which we shouldn't speak or we don't know is clear. Thank you, God, for church that prizes your word because in it we find life and freedom in Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen.